Welcome back to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This week, I sit down with Cindy Alvarez, designer at Microsoft, author of Lean Customer Development, and a member of our program committee for O'Reilly's first design conference. Cindy talks about user research, the relationship between user experience and emotion, and how Microsoft's approach to design is evolving. Enjoy the show. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Um, I'd like to start off with you telling um, myself and those listening a little bit about you and your background and what it is you do at Microsoft. Sure. So, you know, I, I was joking with someone recently that I had every intention of getting my degree in psychology and becoming a psychology professor and spending my life in academia. <laughs> and I discovered the internet and that distracted me and made my grades terrible. And so that never happened, which is probably good because I really like what I'm doing now. So I started out as a visual designer mm-hmm. and, and moved into interaction design because I felt like too many of the storyboard decisions were being made before me. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into product management because, again, too many decisions were being made upstream of me. <laughs> and and now I actually run the user research team for Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft. And so now I'm, we're doing the research that influences the decisions that product managers are making. So I don't know if I have any more steps to go. But I've kind of done everything in the user experience discipline. I built up the design team here. And then when it got too large, uh, promoted one of my people to run it. So now I just run research. But I spend part of my time also evangelizing research, how research plays with data, and how lean startup tactics can help you build better products throughout the rest of Microsoft. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Um, it sounds as though your your career path has basically followed what the, the reality that is becoming more common now, which is designers are in the play in terms of making decisions early on. But the fact that you were doing it all ahead of this, right, this current trend we're seeing is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm just too opinionated to, to not <laughs> speak up when I saw things being done I didn't agree with. I love it. I love it. Um, a funny next question for you, but I, I love I love this question because I always get different answers. Um, how do you define design? Sure, and that's a that's a great question because I think it the answer to that has a lot to do with the compatibility of people that you will work well with. Mm-hmm. So you know, Steve Jobs has said that design is not how it looks; it's how it works. And I would kind of go one step further and say design is is how you work. So when you're using something, how do you feel, how are you feeling more capable? Do you feel smarter? Do you feel stronger? Do you feel stupider? Um, and that's, you know, Kathy Sierra kind of took a similar standpoint. So design is how you feel when you are using things or having experiences. That's great. Right. Right back to the user. Right. Excellent. Um, can you talk a little bit about, we've all seen things in, in um, you know, in the news about how Microsoft is, you know, working with, with design and speech and things like that. But it just from a global viewpoint, how do you, how do you describe how Microsoft approaches design? Um, so I can give you the optimistic forward-looking answer or the, uh, the less optimistic backwards-looking answer. And I'll start, with the, I'll start with the latter, which is that I'd say Microsoft, much of Microsoft, because any big company is not one company. It's hundreds of individual companies that are very different. Mm-hmm. But to, to take it as a, as a global view, Microsoft's design is probably five to ten years behind. And that has a lot to do with the way they hired and staffed 
and the types of people they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they don't have good designers. There's actually excellent designers. I've been amazed by that. But their organizational um, standing doesn't give them much power. You know, as I said, you know, I became a, I kept getting out of design because I wanted to be where the decisions were being made. Well, in Microsoft, the decisions have historically been made with the program manager, which is what they still call product managers, mm-hmm. and with engineering. And so design didn't really get to, you know, say anything until it was too late. And that's historically been the model they've worked under. And with a three-year release cycle, you know, say two and three quarters of the way in, designers were like, hey, this is terrible. And everyone was like, yeah, but it's too late. We have to ship. So a lot of the things, when you look at Microsoft products now and you cringe at the design, that's why. It's not because they don't have good designers. It's because of the process. The process, process is terrible in many companies. Um, but I see that changing because Microsoft has been very all in on moving faster and being more experimental and being more lean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were starting this when they bought Yammer. There's a reason why they bought Yammer because it certainly wasn't for our uh, massive revenues, <laughs> um, but for this line of thinking. And then when Satya Nadella took over, that's been a huge step. You know, Satya has an iPhone and an Android phone and a Windows phone. And he will talk about apps that he has used and, you know, how come we're not doing this? And this is great design. And he is reading, you know, books about behavioral economics and cognitive psychology and telling people about the lean startup and, and promoting this. And one of his direct reports, uh, Scott Guthrie, who leads the cloud and enterprise division has also been very all in on this. Uh, they're they're actually buying copies of the Lean Customer Development book for everyone who wants one in the entire eight thousand person division. Wow. And I come up and give workshops. Uh, there are some program managers who are going to come into our office and embed with my team to help learn more about customer interviewing. Um, so there's this just this massive push towards having more decision points and empowering more people and having more contact with users and that means that everyone is becoming a little bit more design minded which is in turn making those same awesome designers more empowered and bringing them into the fold earlier in the process where they can influence design so i think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on right now and you know from the outside it's not that visible yet except for the super cool products like hololens but but in the day-to-day products and the enterprise products, I think we're going to be seeing really good stuff coming in the next year, two years, three years. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's great news to hear, too, the, the response and that there's some, it sounds like, the, uh, uh, you know, a good deal of change going on in terms yeah. of the thinking. Incredibly interesting from the inside. Great. Um, so you you wrote about this, the butt brush effect, and I'd love for you to explain what it is and how this might be applied to designers. Sure. So the butt brush effect comes from um, the wonderful Paco Underhill's book, <laughs> Why We Buy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a research team looking at people in retail environments and seeing their behaviors and watching what they did and the impacts. And specifically, the butt brush phenomenon is that people looking at products that they really wanted to buy and they were very interested in, but if the store layout made it so that people were kind of bumping into them, that was such a strong push to get them to abandon what they were doing. They would stop looking at the ties. They would stop looking at the scars and just get up and walk away. Hmm. And it's 
you know, he theorized about people feeling vulnerable and, you know, undoubtedly there's some sort of evolutionary thing about, uh, you know, bully man sneaking up on us or something. But I think it just, on a more base level, people just, um, people feel clumsy. They feel fat, they feel clumsy and awkward, and we don't like that at all. And so when you are in a circumstance where you're doing something and this thing happens to make you feel awkward... You know, you don't have to have a woolly mammoth charging at you. You don't even have to have a person watching you. And that was the interesting thing with the butt brush phenomenon. It wasn't necessary that people were getting embarrassed by being bumped into. It would, you know, no one had to see that it happened at all. Mm-hmm. But it still had this effect. And I think you can see that in, a, in that smaller writ when you look at people using software and they have this moment of confusion or like, am I going to do this wrong? And it's... If you watch in user testing, you'll see people's entire body language change. Their shoulders scrunch up and their face gets tight and they just uh, they just look profoundly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And this happens whether you are sitting by them or whether you're in the one-way mirror or if you do online testing, like using something like usertesting.com, you'll still see people are embarrassed that they can't figure out what's going on on the screen. And that has a very chilling effect on what they do. Well, right. It's back to your your comment. Design is how somebody feels when they're yeah, using it, something. They don't want to feel bad. Yeah, it's like we feel like we should be good at these things. This is our job, right? Especially as software becomes so pervasive, we all have smartphones. We all do things on the web. We should have figured this out by now. Mm-hmm. But I think um, you know, I was tweeting angrily the other day that I was on the Google Hangouts page and I could not figure out how to start a Hangout. <laughs> I just like, I, there's nowhere else I should be. There's no call to action. I was sitting there getting flustered, you know, and, and sitting in the room. And finally, I was like, did you see this? And everyone had to admit that we couldn't figure it out either. And it just made us all, ah, everyone was embarrassed. Right. Even though no one was any smarter about that. It was bad design for everyone in the room. And yet everyone, you could tell, was embarrassed that they hadn't figured it out. Right, right. Isn't that interesting? And did you also tweet about Concur, the expense system? Oh gosh, I, I I have done I have complained about that before. I don't yeah. know if I've seen about it. It's also awful. Yeah, it's a tough one. That's one where I always run into it and think, what you know, why is it taking me so long? Yeah. Yeah. On the other side, you see something like Uber, which obviously there's lots of reasons for Uber to be successful and, and Lyft as well. Uh, but I was traveling recently, and I was in Denmark, and I was summoning a car using Uber, and I found myself being so relieved that I wasn't going to have to verbalize the street name, which, of course, I was going to, you know, can you take me to 27 or Warfare Tarot? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, all those street names are, like, 42 letters long. <laughs> and I just started typing, and, in, in, in like, Google Maps auto-completed. So when the guy showed up, I got in, and he just started driving. And I was like, this is so great. And it was like this little, this little burst of delight you know people talk about delight and they often think about you know little little spoofy visual things like no delight is realizing that you didn't have to screw up the danish street name in front of this you know stranger that you'll never see again but that's important you know i was very pleased like i just stepped into my cab i was like he's gonna take me to the right place and i didn't have to embarrass myself it's amazing that's awesome that's awesome it's so true though it's little things really yeah so, so you obviously wrote the book on lean customer development. I wanted to talk a little bit about customer research next. Um, specifically, what do you think are the biggest challenges for conducting customer research? I think the, probably the biggest challenge is that there's so much that you want to know, but you can't ask directly. Hmm. And there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of reasons for that. And one is that you know, we have 
internally, we have kind of a cognitive version of the butt brush effect, which is our brains are always working to keep us from feeling uncomfortable. You know, they're working to keep us from feeling cognitive dissonance. They're working to keep us from being overwhelmed. And so you'll get things like, um, I guess one great response is that is aspirational answers. So if you ask me, how often do you go to the gym? I can tell you four times a week. Is that true? No, it's true that I aspire to be the kind of person who goes to the gym four times a week. You know, maybe this week it's true. Maybe last week it was completely untrue. But we, we, our instinct is to ask questions like that. And even when people aren't trying to make themselves sound better, it's not even, it doesn't have to be conscious. We answer in the world that we'd like to exist in. And if you're trying to create a business model around that, that, that could be enough to sink your business. If you're counting on someone going to the gym four times and they only go once, that's, you know, that could, that could be it. Mm. So there's so many things like that that you can't ask directly or you can't ask because frankly, it's embarrassing. So a lot of uh, a lot of the lean startup talks about pain points and solving people's problems. Well, people don't always feel comfortable talking about their problems, especially and you know, I've been in enterprise software pretty much my whole career, especially when it's at work. So you try and ask someone, you know, basically, how are you bad at your job? You know, no one's going to answer that. <laughs> And, you know, and even when it's not personally embarrassing, we also tend to believe that the way things are for us are the way that, that they're just supposed to be or the way they are for everyone. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a phenomenon called the curse of knowledge, which is you know, basically that the things you know, you know so well that it's hard for you to believe that other people don't know them. So if you ask someone about a procedure, they will assume that you know about the 47 little workarounds that are part of that process. And they'll just say, well, we do A and then B and then C. And that's a lie because there's that post-it note and there's that guy that you ask and there's that, you know, software output that doesn't work. So then you manually export it to a CSV and you highlight this and you do that. And all of that people at some level know, but they don't realize that you don't know. Yes. So when you're doing research, you have to find a way to get around the aspiration and get around the embarrassment and get around all of the unspoken things, because that is the stuff that you need to make the products. Hmm. And well, and it's a lot of digging. It sounds like um, it's a lot of digging. Mm. Um, what do you think are some of the misconceptions um, when you're talking to people, especially people that are new to the space, um, about customer research? I think that there are a couple things. One is that people are very uncomfortable with the notion that you don't know what you're going to learn. Um, so there's this, you know, perhaps conception that, okay, we can do research. We're going to set out to learn these things and then we will learn them. And that's not, it's not like going to the store. You don't go to the store with your list and you buy five things and you have five things. You, you might have a list, but who knows what will be the most interesting. So it's not predictable. The other is that people don't really believe they're going to learn anything new. Hmm. And this is especially prevalent in enterprises where people have been working in a space for a long time. They have been working with these customers for years. They've been working in this industry for years. They feel like nothing new surprises them. And so you go to someone like that and you say, I'm going to do interviews and we're going to learn amazing stuff. And they just kind of look at you with this sort of pitying look and say, like, no, I mean, come on, I, I know this space. And it's true, they know tons of stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's tremendously useful to know the ins and outs of an industry 
and the restrictions and, you know, any regulations that people have to go through and best practices. But even with all this, when you talk to people and you get them talking about uh, procedurals, about what frustrates you about how do things really get done? What's the, you know, what's the secret handshake you have with that team over there? Those things are usually not, they usually haven't come to light before. And you'll see people be shocked because they're like, I've been working with this customer for five years and they never told me this. Well, most of research, most of the great stuff we learn is not stuff that anyone directly tells you. It's stuff that you have to dig for. Mm, Interesting. And also, I mean, to the point of just being able to open up your mind, the fact that you don't have, even if you've been in an industry for 20 plus years, you don't, you don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So just sort of backing up to a a broader question here. Um, You know, I've been watching a lot about what's been going on in the design community, but I'd love to hear what your view is on what changes you're seeing happen in the design community these days. Sure. I think the design community is becoming much more product focused, and I think that's a great thing. So, and what I mean by that is, is that there is... There's design in, you know, a smaller, more mastery, more I'm going to do the best possible thing sense. And that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always correlate with what solves problems for people, what people want to buy, what what delights people. You know, for example, every designer out there thinks Craigslist is horrible and ugly. (laughs) And it is horribly ugly. But if you get on Craigslist and you find an apartment in your new city... You just felt smart. You just felt awesome. That is great design because for whatever reasons that have nothing to do with visual aesthetics, the visual aesthetics of it are crap. But something about that crappiness (laughs) makes it feel very real. And so, you know, and I think there's much more appreciation for that now. So, like, yesterday I posted a welcome email that I got from a new service I was trying out. And it was a plain text email that was very bare bones. And it was basically like, Hey, if you didn't know it yet, here's three interesting things about the product. And it basically just had interesting word choice in the three bullet points and links. And it was very simple. And there was nothing about it that screamed marketing. And that made me trust it because I'm used to having people sell things to me. I'm, you know, I'm a manager. I work for Microsoft. We have a big budget. Everyone wants me to buy their stuff. And so when I try a product and I'm looking at the free trial and the email I get, seems like it's from someone who genuinely just wants me to have a good time. That is so much more useful than they could have sent me this beautifully constructed brochure-like email, and it wouldn't have met my needs. And so design is becoming much more encompassing of that sense of it's in order to make you successful. And if that means sending an ugly email, then that's what it means. If it means... Um, you know, deliberately using goofy words or, or, you know, having a monkey graphic or having very boring graphics, depending on the context, that could be useful as well. It's whatever gets the job done. And so I see design as much more embracing, you know, product, overall experience, psychology, a lot of cognitive psychology I'm seeing reflected in design and reflected in design thinking. And I think that's incredibly important. That is interesting. I mean, I, I viewed it as, you know, a, a stronger emphasis on on function over form, but I never thought of it as really being a flip almost. Um, great example in Craigslist. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't love using that site, but it is hideous. Mm-hmm. Um 
Interesting. Okay. Um, what do you think are the challenges right now with regard to what's going on in the design community? There aren't enough. Uh, there aren't enough design. I mean, this is the same thing anyone who's trying to hire engineers would say. There aren't enough. Um, there, there aren't enough great designers mm-hmm. to hire them. And I would say that the, our, the, our schooling is still doing people a disservice because people are graduating even from very good design programs, and they know a lot about visual hierarchy and typography and color theory, and maybe they even learn to code, but they don't know about the practical realities of product design, which is, you know, what is the business goal? If we don't do the business goal, none of us are going to have a job. How do we say, here is the pinnacle of user experience for a human, and here's our business model, and here's the compromise that works. Mm -hmm. Or here's something that was great, and I love it, and the engineers took one look at it and groaned because it was going to take three months to build. And here's how I had a conversation, not an argument, but a conversation in which I respected the other person's viewpoint, and we agreed mutually on how to create the best possible experience under the circumstances. That as a skill set is huge. Um, I don't think it's being taught to a lot of folks, and I think that companies may not know how to grow that skill very well. There's a few large companies where they hire lots of folks straight out of school. Microsoft is one of them. Um, But there aren't that many places who have thought about, like, how do we create good designers, not from the sense of improving their design chops. I think that's great. But making them good communicators and negotiators. And I think that's an immensely important skill that we're going to see more of Um, But right now, I feel like there's people who are two to three years or more into their career who have become great communicators and negotiators, and they're phenomenally successful, and some of them are co-founding startups. And then there's people coming out who are like, I have a good portfolio, and you ask them why they did something, and they, they they can't justify it beyond, you know, it was best practices. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, do you think that's going to change in terms of... Uh, of, you know, education, or it's just going to be more on-the-job training? Because these are pretty core skills around communication, collaboration, critical thinking. I think it will, I think education will change. Um, I think traditional education always kind of lags a bit, but you already see people kind of picking up the slack with the, you know, Coursera, Udemy sort of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, college students are online now. It's not that hard to read things and be like, hey, I need to know about this as well. And it may be a while before, you know, some of the, the, the white haired professors start realizing we should, we should, you know, offer a design debate class, but people are going to be able to find that increasingly online. Interesting. Okay. Um, uh, kind of another funny question for me, but do you think that design will remain an independent field of practice? As opposed to being rolled up with the, Another discipline? Well, you know, you see, you kind of hear this, this, I've heard sort of both sides of it, that, you know, the idea that everybody should be a designer, which is a horrible statement, so forgive (laughs) me. Um, But, you know, you see a lot of uh, larger companies trying to instill design thinking across the company. Um, But the, the idea that, you know, design is a specialty, but yet everybody should be aware of it. And so I, I question where the profession and where the discipline will evolve. Ah, yeah. Everyone should be a designer and everyone should write code. Right. That's a simple, and both of those are wrong, <laughs> in my opinion. But I would say, you know, to, I'll take the, the other one because it's simpler. and Everyone should write code. I think 
you know, I actually, my first job out of college, I was a programmer. I was, in fact, a terrible programmer, which is why I'm not still one. But it was an incredibly empowering ability as a designer to, when I then went into design, being able to know what things were possible and have a sense for this is difficult to implement versus this is easy to implement. Mm-hmm. And having that confidence, I think, made me a better designer. And it certainly made me a better communicator and negotiator. Now, do I write code today? No. I feel guilty about that, but I don't. Um, but having learned it was useful. Having learned it to a, to a simple degree. Mm-hmm. I would say for the same thing, learning about design thinking is very valuable and everyone should do it. That does not mean that everyone should be a designer. That doesn't even mean people should pick up a whiteboard marker if they don't want to. But there are techniques around learning to observe, learning to see why things are good. Learning to ask why things are good, I think, might even be the simplest thing. Is is this sense of, you know, as I said before, the design for its own mastery sake. When a designer just stands up and says, like, this is good, and everyone is, is expected to accept it, I think, you know, they, they don't typically. But if a designer is standing up and just saying, this is good, and everyone says, okay, we trust you, you're the designer, then I think both parties are at fault. The designer should be saying, here's the problem we're trying to solve, and this is why my design is the best solution for it. And the person looking should understand, I see I see why you made those changes. That doesn't mean that I could ever replicate it, but I understand that this is larger than this because we want people to pay attention here. I understand that you've got used you know, three colors instead of 17 because using 17 would be jarring. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I can tell you which three colors to, to choose and shouldn't, but having that level of understanding just makes everyone's job easier. It has a little bit of common language, and it helps when people can look at other things and see that they're good or bad. So I think there's sort of a, a, a I don't know, it's like when you go to a foreign country it's nice to learn how to say please and thank you and hello and good afternoon in another language, even if everyone speaks English. You know, it's just a nice thing to do. It makes your life a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you should become fluent before you travel anywhere, but having that little bit of effort is a social lubricant. It helps everyone work better together. That's a great comparison. Perfect. Um, one final question for you. Um, what people, products, or projects are you following? What, what's catching your eye these days? Well, I mean, I would have to say Slack, since everyone is talking about Slack. And, of course, you know, being at Yammer, people are always asking, like, what about Slack? Uh, it's a phenomenal example of something where experience is made all the difference. It's not the technology. Slack is IRC. Mm-hmm. But it feels very good. It's very comforting. They've used the right psychology around bringing teams on together. The, you know, the UI feels more like a lounge than a business setting. It, you know, it's great. It's, it's great in all those ways. And I, I talk about it a fair amount just because I want to make sure people aren't taking the wrong lessons away from it, which is I've definitely heard companies say, oh, Slack is successful. Let's go build a chat client. No, it's not successful because it's chat. There's a ton of chat clients that have been around before and after and will never reach that level of success. So that's just a brilliant example of, of that. Um, and then, you know, I talked about Uber and Lyft, those in terms of the end-to-end experience. I mean, 
I, it doesn't sound like if you if you read the founding stories, it doesn't sound like anyone did any customer development at all. But you can imagine that if they had, they would have uncovered exactly the things they have done, which is like there are a series of things that used to be terrible about taking taxis. You know, you didn't know how far away they were. You didn't know when they would come. You didn't know if they were ripping you off by taking the wrong route. You had to shuffle around for money at the end. Um, you know, you couldn't put someone in a taxi without, like, giving them money, which is weird and awkward. Um, you, had to, you had to mispronounce the street name. Um, they're just all these things. And they created a, a, a service which fixes all of those problems. Yeah, that is, it is amazing. Well, thank you, Cindy, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, great to be here. Cindy can be reached through her Twitter handle at Cindy Alvarez. Thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode.